welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm your host, Kate Agnew. One in four Australians are affected by constipation. And as dietitians, we know that food and nutrition are central to solving this problem. And so we usually ask many questions about bowel movements and fiber intake, but there's another consideration to bake. Patients with digestive concerns often present with concurrent increase in pelvic floor muscle tension, which results in chronic constipation, bloating, trapped wind, and discomfort. In this podcast, we're sitting down with dietitian Alyssa Robbins and physiotherapist Brooke Dobbo to dive deeper into this and talk about the considerations for patients with constipation, plus Alyssa and Brooke's experiences and the case studies from their practice. Alyssa Robbins is an accredited practicing dietitian with eight years of experience across both clinical inpatient and outpatient settings. She specializes in gastroenterology, digestive health, and eating disorders from a weight-neutral approach. And Brooke Dobbo is a women's, men's, and pelvic health physiotherapist. She shares her time between treating patients in acute wards and outpatient clinic, and she is also currently completing her master in pelvic floor physiotherapy. Brooke is incredibly passionate about delivering best care for her patients and enjoys treating antenatal postnatal issues, bladder and bowel dysfunction, and pelvic pain with a special interest in sexual dysfunction. So both Alyssa and Brooke are based in Brisbane, Australia. So welcome to the show, ladies. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having having us. (laughs) Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, Just a super quick note for our listeners. This podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. This podcast is for your information only, and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. And professional medical advice should always be obtained before taking action. All right, let's get into it. Um, Alyssa, you've been a dietitian for 18 years with many experiences under your belt. Take us back to the start. Why did you decide to become a dietitian? Well, that seems like a long time ago. Uh, So I always loved food, but I especially um, loved the idea that we could help or heal people with food. That was something I learned in, I think it was food technology in year 10. Um, I also watched my mum struggle with food and body image um, her whole life. So I, I wanted to understand it better. I wanted to help people. Um, I fell into gastroenterology working in the hospital setting and really loved that outpatient kind of care, that the, the chance to really make a difference and, and have someone come back and, you know, you've really improved their symptoms. So that's that's where I started off. Yeah. Thanks, Alyssa. And Brooke, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. I know you've done a ton of study and somehow you seem to juggle a caseload of patients as well as completing your master's. So tell us a little bit about why you chose physio. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I know I think I'm going to be an eternal student. I just can't help myself. Um, But my journey actually started um, way back, you know, after school. I knew I wanted to work in the medical field um originally thinking I'd like to go down 
you know, studying medicine. Um, but funnily enough, during my um, biomedical science degree, I landed a little job as a research assistant uh, for the Cancer Council Queensland um, and actually was on a study, a prostate cancer study, where I interviewed about 500 men um, undergoing treatment for prostate cancer. And the recurring theme was... Um, was actually a lot of these men mentioning their pelvic floor physiotherapist. Um, and this is a whole area that I didn't know existed um, back then. And I think still a lot of people don't realise, you know, this, this scope exists in physiotherapy. Um, and so I'd question these men about, you know, what it was that they were doing. <clears throat> um, and it was pelvic floor rehabilitation. So I got really interested and, and that actually... Um, yeah, encouraged me to look into studying physio and that's how, how I got into it. So I actually went into physio knowing that I wanted to, to work um, in pelvic floor physio. So that's actually how my journey started. Um, and then, of course, I've learned so much since and still am learning. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. That's really interesting, Brooke. Um, I can tell you both you have a passion for helping people and you take a lot of empathy to your roles. Okay, so we're obviously talking about constipation today. And so always a good idea to come back to the foundation. So Alyssa, if you could remind us what is constipation, what's the cause and how is it diagnosed? Okay, so I'll do my best, Kate. Uh, if we use the Rome criteria, which is the official way of diagnosing any kind of uh, functional gut problems, um, they would say, Specific types of symptoms must include for clients to have at least two symptoms of the following. So straining with stool, hard or lumpy stool, feeling that there is blockage in the rectum um, that prevents bowel movements from passing, um, using manual evacuation um, and less than three bowel movements per week. Um, so that's the Rome criteria. It also needs to be coupled with um, no loose motions without laxatives. So what it kind of tries to identify between is mixed picture IBS. So constipation is really you don't get that swinging from one to another. You have this chronic kind of difficulty in being able to evacuate a stool. Um, the reasons, now they are multifactorial, and I think as dietitians we are taught that we, we learned that constipation is because you don't have enough fibre or enough water in your, in your diet, um, and it's really not that simple. So um, we can have organic causes of constipation like inflammatory bowel disease and um, and strictures and, and blockages, actually truly mechanical blockages. But what we're now starting to understand is that functional constipation is a miscommunication between the brain and the gut and it's it changes the nerves and the muscles and the way that things move, the motility through the gut and even the secretions. Um, then the final kind of um, picture that we can have is this obstructed defecation type constipation um, where it's actually an outlet obstruction problem. And that's really what we'll be focusing on today around pelvic floor is how the pelvic floor acts as a block, um, stopping the stool from being able to be evacuated. So it's, it's 
constipation, we kind of think of it as, oh, it's just not going to the toilet often, but it's, you know, multifactorial and, and it's, you know, the, the reasons behind the constipation are actually can be quite different. So I think it's also really important to ask our clients, you know, what, what, does, what does constipation mean to you? Um, you know, really asking detailed questions about the type of stool. I use a Bristol stool chart in my practice and then how often they're going and if, if they're straining. Those are the questions that really help us to um, yeah, get a sense of what the client's experiencing. And then we're obviously going to talk a bit about pelvic floor dysfunction today. So, Brooke, can you tell us what it is, what's the cause, and, again, how is it usually diagnosed? Yeah, so um, the, I guess the term pelvic floor dysfunction uh, really is an umbrella term for many, many um, signs and symptoms that a patient can experience. Um, the most commonly known um, signs and symptoms, of course, would mostly be, uh, you know, women suffering from urinary incontinence um, or prolapse, you know, after having a baby. Everyone knows about those sorts of things and most women learn about that, hopefully, um, after having a baby. Um, I guess more uncommon um, or less talked about um, signs and symptoms uh, or diagnoses would be um, more pelvic floor um, increase in muscle tension. And I appreciate that you used the correct terminology, Kate, in your introduction. Um, you know, I guess we still see and we still will see in, um, in literature and patient information um, using the term overactivity or you might see hypertonicity. Um, but I might even just take this opportunity to... Um, to update that because I think it just came out last month, hot off the press. Uh, there was a, an IUG, IUGA um, article that's been released, which is the International Urogynecology Association. Um, just an update on terminology and um, how if you do use the, the term overactivity or hypertonicity, that is um, more referring to a neurogenic or neurological disorder, which we still do see, absolutely, for example, in Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis. Um, but the one that we're, we're more talking about, and I guess we're talking about today, is uh, more an increase in pelvic floor muscle tension. Um, so, and I guess, you know, to diagnose that, to answer that, um, initially what can be quite nice, especially at a first consultation, would be more um, external observation um, or, or assessment, so less invasive. So, for example, a nice place to start would be actually using real-time ultrasound um, transabdominally to identify movement or, or coordination of the pelvic floor to see if we actually do have any movement um, and what that looks like. The gold standard way of assessing pelvic floor muscles is um, doing an internal vaginal examination. So that way we really can assess um, the tension of the muscles, um, both superficial muscles and deep uh, pelvic floor musculature, um, also where the organs are sitting because that can definitely play a part, um, particularly if the you know we've got symptoms of constipation, so the laxity of the vaginal wall, um, and then of course the actual strength, endurance, power, and coordination of the the muscles. Yeah, we were just talking before about how 
it's sort of a taboo where we, we hear pelvic floor dysfunction and we immediately think of um, women who have gone through childbirth or older um, people. Am I right in saying that it can actually affect a whole range of people and all different stages of life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's the clientele, um, you know, that I see a lot of is actually, you know, younger or middle-aged women walking into the clinic thinking that they are alone, um, you know, in their suffering of these type of symptoms. And you're right, it is a taboo issue. It is a taboo topic um, that people don't talk about and they don't realise, A, how common it is, and B, that it is treatable. You just need to know <laughs> where to go and, and and who to see, yeah. And just to clarify, males can suffer from pelvic floor dysfunction as well as females? Absolutely, yes. And, um, you know, uh, Alyssa and I do share um, quite a few male patients that we see together, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so we're part of the movement, I suppose, to make it less taboo topic. I'm sure Alyssa's friends and family like mine know that we will likely bring it up over the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you sitting on the Bristol still scale, guys? <laughs> That's pretty normal for dietitians. So yeah, it's good to know that it's uh, normal in uh, physio land as well. Absolutely, it is. <laughs> um, so obviously we're going to talk a bit about um, the relationship between constipation and pelvic floor dysfunction or PFD. Um, just quickly, what is the relationship between those two? If you could summarise it and which tends to come first. Yeah, uh, the chicken or the egg, isn't it? Um, it's a very good question. And I suppose, um, you know, that getting back to what Alyssa just mentioned, the importance, the absolute, um, it's paramount to get uh, a very good and detailed subjective examination because it is multifactorial and there are so many things that can contribute to um, constipation and or pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, So, you know, as an example, if we're more talking about um, increased muscle tension, which we we often see, um, it could have started, you know, after maybe having a baby or maybe having an episode of constipation, travelling, et cetera, um, that ended up, you know, um, as a consequence with hemorrhoids and fissures, as as this is just one of many examples, that then, um, you know, Uh, manifested as painful uh, defecation Mm -hmm. and so what our muscles do and and this is systemic like our muscle system one of the main um, functions of of a skeletal muscle is to protect us so if we have pain if we have pain in an area what our muscles will tend to do is um contract or or it's sometimes even spasm And that in itself can start to cause more pain. So, you know, you risk getting in that um, vicious cycle. So um, in that instance, perhaps the pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, um, you know, in our poor pelvic muscles, we can't see them. And we, you know, unlike a bicep, you know, um, which flexes our elbow, we can't see these muscles. And and again, on top of that, it's such a taboo topic and an area um you know no one really understands what's going on and like Alyssa said they just think oh I've got constipation and so yeah that can then lead to constipation and then because they don't know what's happening there leads to chronic constipation and then more subsequent issues um so yeah but I guess a lot of the time the pelvic floor muscle dysfunction will go alongside 
you know, signs and symptoms of, of constipation. Um, another common, I guess, presentation that Alicia and I would see together would be um, more that middle-aged or older woman presenting with symptoms of, of prolapse, in particular like a um, either a rectal prolapse or rectal intersusception or a rectocele, which is basically um, the posterior vaginal wall bulging into the vagina. And so... And what leads to that? I mean, that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> but, um, you know, that can be um, uh, chronic coughing, childbirth, um, et cetera, or, or just general ligament laxity underlying that, which then leads to, um, you know, symptoms of prolapse, which then, you know, alongside that leads to issues of uh, or, and signs of constipation incomplete evacuation um, and things like that. So, sorry, that was a very long um, answer to your question and I probably could go on, but yes. <laughs> no, thank um, you. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, <laughs> just thinking, Brooke and Alyssa, in terms of how you both work together, what will the patient usually present with? Is it is it constipation and then and then you dive deeper into um, the, the pelvic floor area? Sorry, the it's a terrible pun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, every single client is different, isn't it? They all have a different story. Um, I guess, you know, and something that Alyssa and I have been talking a fair bit about recently is the, um, the sad reality of how many of our patients, in, in particular our female patients, have actually experienced trauma in their lives? Like the statistics are, um, they're actually awful. They're actually disgusting. And, uh, you know, I guess we, we are seeing a movement, you know. It is getting more talked about. It's, it's, it is a hot topic and, and it should be um, in, in the media today particularly, you know, talking about um, sexual trauma. Um, but unfortunately, the sad reality is that, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of these clients that we're seeing do have a history of trauma. And, um, you know, that actually could be the source of, um, you know, increased pelvic floor muscle tension as well. And, and a lot of people don't recognise, you know, who would, who would even think that, oh, the constipation I have today actually stems back from a traumatic experience I had as a teenager, you know. Um, so that's why, yes, that, um, that history and the rapport building is paramount mm -hmm. with these patients. And so, Brooke, obviously we're getting into uh, mental health care in a way through that, mm. you know, these sorts of situations. How will you mm. then balance that with your scope as a physio and then, mm. um, you know? other yes. healthcare professionals mm, yeah that that is a very very good question um and as a clinician I mean always we do always have to acknowledge our scope of practice I think it's really important to first of all listen to you know what what our clients have to say often there is a story and and if they're comfortable in sharing that just giving that space for them to share that with you which ultimately builds that rapport and the trust which is very important it's important not to um, jump quickly to a conclusion of oh you've got trauma oh okay you need to go see a psychologist because 
you know, women can often um, walk out of a session in, in the medical world and not feel heard and think, and I, oh, so many patients say, oh, the, the doctor thought I was crazy, you know, and that's not it at all. Um, so it is really important to um, to listen, acknowledge, you know, um, confirm, empathize. That's the LACE principles. I love using that. It's really important. Um, and then let them acknowledge that connection. I think that's the most powerful thing, not to have someone say, oh, your trauma is causing your symptoms, but for them to actually make that connection. And, of course, you um, assist in that um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, them acknowledging that. And then, of course, having a really good pool of um, referral pathways, you know, is, is, is so important. So whether that be psychologists, um, particularly I think it's important that, you know that they're, they're, they specialise in, um, you know, whatever area, so trauma, for example, or grief. Um, p- perhaps it would be a sex therapist or a sexologist. Um, yeah, so knowing when and where to refer is so important. And I suppose that's the crux of what we're talking about today is the importance of that holistic care, that multi-D team. You know, it's not just the pelvic floor physio of you know it's it's the puzzle piece it's the dietitian it's the good gp it's the good specialist and if necessary um you know um supporting that mental health as well so important and Alyssa, would you add anything there oh so good so good to work with this special lady um <laughs> So I guess really like when I, I, with Brooke being a pelvic floor physio, I think people may walk in the door probably being aware of their problems to begin with, like I'm there for a pelvic issue. Whereas what I notice in my practice is, you know, half of the clients that come in, um, they come in with irritable bowel. So that's what they're they're coming in with bloating, irritable bowel. I need to fix my gut health. I have all these problems. And so they're they're, I feel like as dietitians potentially, we're seeing people that have absolutely no idea that this the pelvic floor could be playing a role. And it's through really careful and thoughtful questions. Um, and in a, you know, within our scope, but also just very considerate and 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 um and making sure our clients feel safe and feel heard, asking those questions to elucidate whether it's possible that pelvic floor dysfunction or, excuse me, pelvic floor tension may be playing a role in in, in, in their, their picture of where they're showing up in front of us. And we, I feel like as dietitians, we could be a really, we could be like a first line of defence because we sit and we listen. To our clients, we we hear the detail. We can sit and take a really thorough history um, of what's going on in their digestive tract. And we also know if we ask questions about, you know, how did you respond to using fibre supplements? Like that is a little key. That's a little bit of information that tells us if fibre supplements have made the constipation worse, we need to be thinking, aha, what else is going on here? Whereas in the 10 minutes they have with their GP, they don't get to that. They don't come up with that conclusion. So I feel like as dietitians, you know, we're a really great screening tool for people who show up with bloating and constipation and we should be thinking, hmm, what else could be going on here? And Alyssa, I'm just I'm curious as to how you've, um, you know, 
you've landed in the spot with all this wisdom and experience because I'm just thinking back to my training as a dietitian and you're right we we learned about fiber and water and it was quite simplistic so how did you um, get to being on this journey working with Brooke and knowing that there's a lot more to constipation and bloating and etc look I have to um I really have to thank a colorectal surgeon that works at the hospital that Brooke works at who contacted me um, when I first came into private practice. Actually, I think I contacted him. <laughs> and um, I'd, my name had been put forward to he was looking for a dietitian to work with. And he decided, and I, I don't know his story, but he had been practicing for many years and then I don't know how long he'd been referring to you guys already, Brooke, but he decided to get a dietitian on board and he now his practice is, for the last three or so years anyway with me, um, he refers almost all of his clients to me and all of his clients to the pelvic physios before he operates. And he says to them, you know, there's a group of people that with the right expertise don't need surgery. And I'm like, I love a surgeon who doesn't want to operate. Like that's the person I want to go to, you know. Um, so I started getting these clients coming in with, you know, prolapse and pelvic floor problems and I had to learn how to manage them. Fibre wasn't working, fibre and fluid. It wasn't as simple as that. And so I went back to the literature and I really had to, you know, I was looking up slow transit constipation and how do I manage it? And it was all talking about low fibre and I'm like, this is crazy. It sort of makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, so just over time I kind of, I, I learned that a little bit like we do with a colonoscopy prep, we go low fibre, low residue and we flush people out. It's a little bit that way so I started to visualize it like that and then we were getting really really great outcomes with the clients and their their stool modification was great and and you know everyone needed slightly different advice because their symptoms were slightly different and their diets were slightly different and I think the surgeon recognized you couldn't just prescribe Benny Fiber or Metamucil and fix it like you need to actually have someone work. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how I became upskilled. So it was a little bit of learning on my feet um, with a big background in, you know, surgical dietetics and gastroenterology and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, that that's really where I learned. And I actually I do think, sorry, Kate, to keep going on here, um, I do think that dietitians could be incredible resources for colorectal surgeons I think that actually a little trio of a team pelvic floor physio dietitian and and outcomes for clients because even if they go forward and have surgery we've done some really great work beforehand helping them with their diet that they have much better outcomes that's that's what we observe anyway I think you two are pioneering that practice of the Maybe. trio of health professionals. So um, cool. So that, that's a great segue to, you know, the next question I wanted to ask around typical patient who walks in. I'll start with you, Alyssa, and then, and then we'll go to you, Brooke. Um, so what, what does a typical patient look like? What will you ask them and what will they tell you? And then what other considerations will you make? Love it. Okay, I, I think for the purposes of um, 
you know, thinking about how this can translate to other dietitians in practice. I want to talk about the person that walks in that has gut issues, you know, maybe they call it irritable bowel um, and, and with sort of constipation as a, as a feature. Um, so I'm always, uh, I'm always using my symptom evaluation form, which is a beautifully validated thorough tool that I received from Dr. Heidi Staudecker, actually, who was from King's College in London. Now, that's been validated in irritable bowel syndrome. Um, but what I love about it is it has a Bristol stool chart. It has a stool frequency kind of questionnaire component um, and goes and asks the question, do you suffer from incomplete evacuation? Now, when I got this symptom form, it's also got things about bloating and wind and burping and reflux, so it's, it's quite thorough. Um, but when I read this question, incomplete evacuation, I'm thinking, what does that even mean? Then as I started to work with more of um, this doctor's clients, I was like, aha, you guys are the ones ticking severe, right? So I'm like, ah, oh, this, is, this is interesting. So then I get my IBS patients coming through the door and I notice some of them are ticking incomplete evacuation. And I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. And so I'm, I'm asking them very, like very thorough, what are your digestive symptoms from top to bottom? When did they start? What's the frequency? What bothers you the most? I'm always asking that. If we were to focus on one thing today, what would it be? And often they won't say something like, they won't go, oh, I wish that incomplete evacuation was gone. They usually say, I'd love to go to the loo more frequently and I hate the bloating. And I say to them, well, if we actually focus on getting a better evacuation of your stool, what we might find is we get some relief in, in that area. What do you think? They're like, yep, great. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm asking them, timeline is really important the longer they've had constipation or a slow bowel for the more I'm thinking about that kind of pain cycle or threshold um, that we that talked about before you know that perpetuating cycle so I have constipation for 10 years well yeah things might be a bit jammed up down there you know from a musculature point of view as well um, and I'm also asking questions about um, if they're female, I ask questions about their um, their reproductive system very gently and thoughtfully and carefully because I am a trauma-informed dietitian. I don't treat trauma, but I am very aware. Um, so I'm very thoughtful around that. So I might ask, do they suffer, you know, do they have endometriosis or do they have particularly painful periods? Um, and if they're starting to say, yes, yes, that's me, that's my picture, Again, in the back of my mind, I'm not necessarily saying it out loud yet, but I'm thinking, hmm, this could be playing a role. So that in, that little tick box of incomplete evacuation and um, and looking at the type of stool they're passing and then any other kind of pelvic pain situation and then the duration, like how long have they been suffering con from constipation, those are kind of the key things I'm thinking about when I'm talking to our clients. And look, our clients are suffering in silence. Like Brooke said, it's not the kind of thing you talk about. Um, and when you say to them, hey, I, I think there's some really great things that we could do here, just the relief is awesome. It's good to be a dietitian. Thanks for sharing your um, thought process, Alyssa. So at what point would you then, uh, you know, bring Brooke into the conversation? 
Yeah, good question. Um, so if I'm starting to get those red flags and I'm thinking that pelvic floor may be playing a role, I'm, I'm thinking by the end of our session, our first session, if I think it's going to make a really big difference, if I'm pretty sure it's pelvic floor problem, I will suggest connecting with a pelvic floor physio like Brooke, um, you know, as soon as possible, depending on the client's resources and what they've going on, got going on in their lives. I'm very thoughtful not to add more burden and complexity to their situation. So I, I'll often sort of hold it in the back of my mind, just it might be the first session. If I sense the client might feel a bit overwhelmed by that, what I might do is send them away with the, you know, soluble or soft fibre diet intervention anyway see if we can get some response and then at the second session when we probably haven't solved all the problems because it's probably pelvic floor dysfunction, I'll actually have that conversation then and do a bit of education around what it could be and, and really checking in to see whether that, how that sits with them. You know, does that sound like it could be playing a role for you? What do you think? Yeah, and then I'd throw over to Brooke. And Brooke, tell us about... Um you know, from your perspective, typical client? Yeah, so, um, of course, if the, um, you know, the referral um, is for constipation slash incomplete emptying, um, questioning all about that, but it's very rarely just that. <laughs> it often does come with a whole lot of symptoms. Um, so, of course, you know, questioning more about defecatory function, how often, um, you know, stool type, Incomplete emptying, um, are you getting urgency? Are you not getting an urge? Do you have a lack of, of urge and rectal sensation? Um, do you have pain? Do you have pain um, all the time? Do you have, does it wake you up at night? You know, some people get those rectal spasms that actually wake them in the night. Or is it just with um, defecation? So, uh, you know, questioning around there. And then I'll, as, as a pelvic health physio, I'll always ask about bladder. Um, and yeah, it's not uncommon to have bladder symptoms associated um, with bowel symptoms. So again, that might look like incomplete emptying, so voiding the bladder. Um, and again, like Alyssa said, you start thinking if that does, if that is a thing, you think, mm, okay, maybe it's we've got a bit of tension in those muscles. They're not letting go um, because it's you know it's it's having an effect on the bowel. It's also having an effect on the bladder. Um, are they leaking urine? Um, and an interesting thing is that, you know, um, there's a common misconception that if you, if you have an increase in pelvic floor muscle tension, then that would mean that you wouldn't leak because, you know, oh my, I've actually got two strong muscles, a lot of patients say, um, you know, how, how can that be that I'm still leaking? But um, the reality is, and it sounds like an oxymoron, but you can have, um, and I... <laughs> I'm, I'm holding back from using the word overactivity, but it just sounds right. <laughs> Increased tension in your pelvic floor muscles, um, but they can also be weak. Um, and the best way to explain that is, um, I mean, I love a good analogy. So I tend to use an analogy of the elevator. Um, so in, in terms of how much tension your pelvic floor muscles can hold, let's say they go from ground floor to level 10. At any given time, all of our muscles right now, even just sitting here, should be about at level two. So there is some tension there to hold everything up and in, all our organs and to keep us continent. Then they also need to be able to squeeze nicely up to, say, level eight when we cough, sneeze, lift, laugh, jump, etc. 
Then they need to be able to relax down to the basement for defecation, for urination, and for intercourse, to name a few. Um, so often what we see with that increased tension and if we're getting incontinence is that we're actually sitting at like a seven or an eight. And you try and squeeze up and you just you don't have much you don't have much um, room to move. So, um, you know, yeah, we work on then bringing that baseline down so that you can coordinate through. So, yes, questioning about the bladder um, and then questioning about pelvic pain. So, and this is why I love you, Alyssa, because, you know, you're thinking about that and you're asking the questions and this is the movement that we're part of, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, asking about, um, yeah, like I said, pain with defecation, um, pain with urination. Uh, maybe there's some underlying <clears throat> inflammatory processes happening there, particularly if it's endometriosis. Um, and that's, again, that's a whole whole nother talk that we can talk about. Um, but endo, just in, a, in, in short, um, being an inflammatory process absolutely plays havoc on the bladder and the bowel. So it's a really important um, thing to, to consider. Hormones, them hormones are strong. Um, do you have general pelvic pain? Do you have it all the time? Do you have it? Um, is it cyclic like is it a hormonal thing um, pain with bloating um, and pain with intercourse um, you know and another nice way to if especially for those who um, suspect it you know physios or dietitians or anyone but they're not comfortable asking about intercourse if for that particular patient um, asking if have you ever had difficulty in setting a tampon that's another sort of easy way to screen maybe we've got some increased uh, muscle tension uh, and or pain there so um, yeah just asking all of those questions and you know often my initial assessment the subjective um, takes you know the, the full hour um, because there, there is just so much to learn and the, and the complexities um, behind it to then shape what you're going to do with management at least trial <laughs> to start you on the management um, process and if they don't have a dietitian make sure they do get one <laughs> great um, analogy there Brooke with um talking about the elevator that was very helpful <laughs> um <laughs> so obviously then Talking intervention, Alyssa, you talked a little bit about a soft fibre diet. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the range of interventions you might need from dietetics point of view? Love it. Um, so the soft fibre diet, I think it's going to be my, I might have to patent that one. Um, <laughs> we, we're not taught a soft fibre diet in, uh, in dietetics. What we are taught is the difference between soluble and insoluble fibre. Um, I know that more recently there's been a little bit of um you know, interest around that, that being a little bit too dichotomous, so um, a bit binary and that there actually might be a lot more ranges of fibre and, and that's really come out of our understanding of the gut microbiome and how different microbiota feed on fibre and that sort of thing. But for the purposes of functional gut disorder um, or a functional gut or a pelvic floor tension problem, um, I really am talking, I, I talk to my clients about the mechanics of it. So I say to them, you know, with your pelvic floor physio, they're going to help you work on your plumbing. And with me, we're going to work on the sludge that goes through the pipes. And we're going to try and achieve as best we can a type three or four 
stool on the Bristol stool chart. And the way, the best way for us to do that is to start using some really soft fibres, um, soft fibre foods. And I, don't, I really hate a low fibre diet. I hate the idea of it from a nutritional perspective. It's way too, um, I don't like diets to begin with, uh, but it's just way too rigid. Um, whereas when we talk soft fibre, we're saying you can have nuts but have them in paste form. You can have legumes but have them in paste form like hummus. Um, so we're still getting that nutritional diversity. You can have fruit, put it in a smoothie. Um, uh, and then soft fruits like bananas and mango and stone fruit and those sorts of things are fine. So so we're really, I'm talking to clients about soft, spongy kind of foods that are going to gel and absorb water in the bowel and are going to really glue things together so that we can try and get a really nice looking sausage like poop that is and we want play-doh consistency we don't want it to be pasty we want it to be tacky so that it can encourage the pelvic floor and the anus and the rectum and all of those muscles and Brooke would know better than than me on this but to really open right up and close again behind the stool rather than having pellets coming out with straining um, or intermittent pellets and diarrhea, you know, that can, that can kind of happen. So you are using that soft, soluble fiber, anything you can mash with a fork to, um, to, to really focus on to begin with. And most people can cope with that. Yeah. I'm going to assume that when your patient leaves your room, Alyssa, they're pretty comfortable with talking about poop <laughs> based on what you just <laughs> described then. <laughs> They really are. Look, they're 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 very good to me. They're very patient. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and Brooke, I'd love to know from your perspective, um, you know, what the intervention looks like. Yeah. So I guess the number one, like the first place to start, is um, connecting to your pelvic floor um, and identifying the muscles. You know, um, in particular, men often men don't realise they have a pelvic floor, <laughs> you know, until they're, they're faced with these issues and um, learn it in, in my clinic. Um, so that can come in many different shapes and forms, um, you know, and we call that biofeedback, so biofeedback training, and there's a fair bit in the literature that's um, com coming out too, which is great. Um so, yeah, identifying the muscles, knowing when you're on, knowing when you're off. Um, and that's often the hardest bit, to be honest. Um, so, like I mentioned, it can be really nice to start, um, you know, with real-time ultrasound, seeing if there's any movement. Um, and really, if, you know, if there's one thing that I can send a patient home with in, the, within that first initial consult, especially if we've, you know, spoken for a good hour, it will be uh, to learn how to breathe, um, you know, and a lot of patients will maybe raise their eyebrows and like, what do you mean? I can breathe. What are you talking about? Um, but the reality is, you know, w most of us don't breathe correctly, um, in particular uh, in our busy world, in our busy lives. We've got so much going on. We're chronically, you know, in that sympathetic nervous system. We're breathing with our up into our chest, you know. So um, there is a, a beautiful connection 
between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, and that's often lost, um, not just in these patients, in, in almost you know, in a lot of people. Um, so, and you know, you need the buy-in. So, I mean, you need the education of okay, this is why I'm going to teach you to breathe. Um, but sometimes that's why the real-time ultrasound is nice because even with a few breaths, you can actually show them okay your pelvic floor just dropped down how cool is that um so and i think it's really important to um explain not just about you know physically learning to breathe into your tummy so letting the abdominal wall go physically reducing tension in the pelvic floor um, but we can translate that directly into defecation so, you know, the next stage would be to then go over defecation dynamics. Um, I won't go too much into that unless you want me to because does everyone have a poop stool in the room? And, uh, hands up. <laughs> you don't, you should. <laughs> um, but, yes, um, translating at least the breath work into that. So um, getting the positioning right and getting the breathing right. Um, you know, um, again, in, in a nutshell, number one is the stool type. That is the tip of the iceberg. So if that's not in order, um, you know, go and see your dietitian to sort that out. Optimize that stool because the reality is, if um, if that stool is just not right, like if we're up in the ones and twos or down in the five, six, seven on the scale, all the work that we do will be obsolete. You know, all, all, and I, I love that analogy. That I think you came up with that, Alyssa. <laughs> the, you work on the sludge. I'll work on the plumbing. <laughs> because it's so true um you need both of them you really really do um so yes and then but not only that um diaphragmatic breathing is like the first thing they use in cognitive behavioral therapy cbt because they know that it calms the nervous system down it flicks you from that fright and flight into rest and digest because that's literally what we need we need to promote that beautiful gut movement and um and I use it for establishing the morning routine that beautiful gentle massage of the the diaphragm on the bowel in the morning to say hey it's time to get moving um and just in general life if you're stuck in traffic and you've got a two-year-old screaming in in the back um which I often do you know diaphragmatic breathing just to help calm you down so that you're not reacting to things you can respond to things so it, it's got a lot of um life <laughs> benefits as well um so that's why i will touch on breathing first and then yes um biofeedback training to ultimately work on pelvic floor muscle coordination because you know what like we spoke about at the beginning strength and endurance obviously is important but it's also i think the most important thing is coordination you need to be strong yes but you also need to be able to have the ability to relax those muscles when you need to. That's really interesting. Yeah. So is it possible for patients to recover from pelvic floor dysfunction and constipation? Um, I'll throw to you first, Brooke, and then we'll throw to you, Alyssa. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, like I spoke about, it's it's that buy-in, isn't it? So um, so often I will get patients back on the, on the second treatment and I've literally just sent them home with breathing and they were like, oh my gosh, I actually felt empty yesterday. Like I was skeptical, Brooke, but it worked. <laughs> um, and sometimes it is as simple as that. 
Not always, you know. Um, sometimes it can take a little bit longer, particularly if we've got a lot of history um, and um, or, or like we spoke about before, if we've got a lot of psychological um, implications as well. Um, it can take a little longer, but the short answer is yes, they can. And I think organically, the um, the the sim- their signs and symptoms for not only bowel but perhaps pain and just general pain and or bladder symptoms organically um, will alleviate as well and so they're seeing okay this this is actually working yeah these muscles that I had no idea about um, I'm now connected to them yeah yeah. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say before. It sounds like a, a, a big part of your treatment, Brooke, is around helping them reconnect um, and consciously connect with their muscles. One hundred percent. Yep. And you know, I will often say, if it's appropriate in the first session, maybe build some rapport and say it in the second. Have you ever gotten a mirror? And this is to the ladies. And looked at your perineum. Looked at your vulva. Do you know what your anatomy looks like? Like, that's amazing. And as you could imagine, the most common response is, oh, no, oh, no. I'm like, but it's your body, you know, and it's it's your anatomy. And I say, damn you, society, <laughs> for making this such a taboo thing, you know. Um, and, again, I'm so happy that people are having these conversations and, you know, Um, and I'm listening to all podcasts on empowerment and and women's empowerment, let's get rid of the shame associated with our genitals, you know, that's been literally created over hundreds of years, really. And I think um, let's say to our next generation, our daughters, Alyssa, you know, they're going to, they're going to make a difference. You know, that's, I think hopefully this is going to be the change. And I'm, I am actually seeing it, especially in the younger girls, the teenagers, some of them are like, yeah, 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 it's no big deal. That's great. So, <laughs> so and, you know, hallelujah. <laughs> um, but yes, that's that's a one first step into connecting to the muscles because that's one way we can see movement. Because when you do get a good optimal pelvic floor contraction, what you should actually see is your perineum. So that's a bit of skin between the vagina and the anus. I'm um, drawing in nicely and um, seeing that anal. Well, you know, your anus winks. So have a look at that. It's amazing. Um, you know, and so that visual connection literally helps the brain to connect to those muscles. So that's the first step. Um, and there's many other things as well. I can tell you that later. There's no boundary walls on this conversation. <laughs> um, and Alyssa, from your perspective, so I love, I love the idea that I say to our clients, you know, our bodies are moving and dynamic and, and when you do this work with the physios, um, you're going to learn things that you never knew <laughs> before and really they do. Um, but, but it's really, it's a transition. So I explain to our clients when we modify your fibre to optimise your stool type and to manage um, to, to get better frequency with your stools, we're really just managing your symptoms alongside the work that you're doing with the physio. And over time, you'll be able to bring, as you as your pelvic floor becomes stronger or more coordinated or whatever it is that you are working on with the pelvic floor physio, once your pipes are in order, 
then you'll actually have a lot more flexibility with what we put in to your pipes. So we start with this modified, fairly modified diet, and we may be using something like Osmolax regularly to, to encourage that morning bowel motion. So we do Osmolax at night with this lovely soft soluble fiber diet during the day, regular eating. So consistent eating is really important and just such a great foundation for our clients to try and get that predictability with um, going to the loo in the mornings. And then over time, I say to them, you'll be able to transition back to normal eating in time. It might take a few months. It might be a year. You might find that for you, it feels better to always have some soft, spongy kind of foods in your diet. It might be that raw kale salads with pepitas and um, flax seeds might not feel so great for you. And so I just invite my clients to be really curious with how things um, move through their body. And I let them know, even when I'm asking them to do a really soft soluble fiber diet at the start, I let them know, don't freak out if you're at an event and all they're serving is salad. It's okay. Chew it well, slow down, Pair it with something soft if you can, find a bread roll or, you know, and if you can't, just notice what happens and be really kind to yourself, uh, you know, and, and see how you go the next day, get back on board. Um, and just really giving them that power to 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 notice and to, to be curious and to transition. It's not a rigid diet. It is very individual. So there will be a time you can eat normally again, whatever that looks like for you. It sounds like um, Brooke and Alyssa have both done some truly life-changing work with, with patients who are suffering from this. Um, I'm just keen to know, you know, why you think this is a really important conversation for dietitians and physios to be having. And I, I know that we've really touched on the importance of this podcast, but if you have any other kind of comments or thoughts around that. Um, I think... Thank you for, for giving us the opportunity to speak about this because we are really passionate. And a word that Brooke used before, shame. You know, our clients, they come to us, they might talk about bloating, but then actually when you get down to it, it's a it's a defecation problem. It's a it's a stool problem. And they people feel really stuck in this shameful place that their body maybe isn't working properly or there's something wrong with me or I'm broken and not being able to discuss that. So I think, you know, when we're able to sit with a client and listen to their story, notice they've, they've had constipation for a long time, they've seen GPs, they may have even seen specialists and they get the same advice, more fibre, more fluid, and if we can just listen to their story and notice, well, what happened when that when they added the fiber? Well, it made things worse. Like that's when we can think a bit differently. And we can ask some of those extra questions around bladder or gyny stuff to, to, to get a sense of maybe this could be playing a role and starting to open up hope for these people. I don't want dietitians to be another person that you go to telling them to have more fiber and fluid when we know it hasn't worked for them before. You know, listen to the client's story. If it hasn't worked in the past, you need to think differently. And I think it could be a really great opportunity to then refer on to people like pelvic floor physios who can absolutely change people's lives. So I'm sure we have uh, dietitians and physios listening to this podcast thinking, well, where can I go to upskill and get professional development? So I was hoping, Brooke and Melissa, you could help us with that. So I'll throw to you first, Brooke. 
Yeah, sure. So in, you know, the foundations of physiotherapy, um, for example, a bachelor degree, there's not a whole lot on men's, women's and pelvic health. Um, it, I think it has improved um, since my day, um, my understanding, but I don't think it's more than, say, two or three weeks of a module. Um, and really, there is so much to learn in this area. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just love continuing to learn and see seeing um, the research that's coming out in this area. Um the APA, which is the Australian Physiotherapy Association, uh, have actually created a career pathway for someone who, you know, wants to become a pelvic health physiotherapist, which is super exciting. It's something we haven't had in the past. And so it's it's actually rolling out right now. Um, so they have the level one um, face-to-face and online content available Um, it's also really great because if someone you know wanted to specialize in say pain and dabble in women's health at least have that basic knowledge um, that they can go down the pain career pathway um, but then do say level one maybe level two of a women's health course as an example Um, so it's really exciting they're doing that for all the streams so cardiorespiratory musculoskeletal sports Um, so that is really streamlining streamlining that and making that Um, quite transparent for the new graduates coming out, which is really great. Um, And then, of course, you've got um, just the general um, professional development, conferences. Um, Most of it is through the APA um, because they're they're so fantastic at providing, you know, the best um, professional development Um, and often with crossover with multi-D teams as well, which is really important. Um, And then you've got um, other um, you know, companies and um, you know, going to other, you know, dietitian events and things like that, I think is really important. Um, and uh, university. So that's what I'm doing at the moment too. Like I said, can't help myself. I think I'm going to have a triple figure hex debt <laughs> by the end of this. I'd love to do master of sexology too one day. Um, so yes, doing postgraduate certificates. They've got them through the University of Melbourne, University of South Australia, Curtin University in Western Australia, um, and then the master's program there as well. So plenty to do and learn (laughs) and Alyssa from your perspective well goodness this is going to be quite disappointing after that uh incredible uh list of long list (laughs) holy dooly um it just makes me more passionate about doing some work and training in this area um so look I the only place that I know of for for learning more about this is through Marcy Evans um her digestive disorders course now she is uh specializes in eating disorders and it was this crossover between eating disorders and digestive disorders and this is where the only other person I have heard talking about this um, and actually really talking about how to use dietary manipulation um, to treat it. Um, So I'm actually through Inner Health Nutrition, I am offering private supervision sessions to dietitians and over time in 2021, which is already here, terrifying, um, (laughs) I'm going to be doing some group supervision and I think I will be, if there's enough demand, I will be doing particular specialised supervision in this area um, and offering some training will be my goal in the end because there's nothing out there. (laughs) So, (laughs) And um, 
Alyssa, I believe you had a paper or two to share with us as well. So we could link that on the show notes and the list of those kind of resources and places to go. I do. I do have a few references. Um, They don't go into huge detail about um, like they just talk about low fiber diets um, being beneficial in this area. So they help us to go, okay, what we're doing is safe and useful. Um, But really in terms of getting into the nitty gritty of what that looks like, um, there's very little out there at the moment, but watch this space. We'll work Mm -hmm. on it. And I will attach, yes, the symptom evaluation form, which was pivotal in starting to ask the question of all questions, dietitians, do you suffer from incomplete evacuation? That is the question I want to leave you with. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Um, you. Yeah. Well, just to wrap up, um, what's one thing that you'd like dietitians and physiotherapists to take away from this conversation Um, or, you know, any last comments? I'll start with you, Alyssa. Uh, I'd love dietitians to just listen to what has worked in your patients and what hasn't. If someone comes into you with bloating and constipation, Ask them, what has, how have you gone with fibre supplements? If they tell you it's made things worse, I want you to think differently. Think what else could be going on? How can we be a point of difference and a, a you know a point of help for this person? And yourself, Brooke. Yeah. So um, leading on what from Alyssa just said, that good subjective is the most important thing. Um, you know, I've, as we've spoken about today, how complex it can be. You know, it's often not just that one symptom, um, and then identifying when and where to refer. So if there is that piece of the puzzle missing, whether it is a yeah, a dietitian or perhaps it is a another clinician, therapist, a sexual therapist or a, a psychologist, um, yeah, making that realisation um, and, and referral pathway um, because, yeah, it's not just about you. It's about the whole team, which, you know, we know that. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you so much for having us today, Kate. This was just super fun. Thank you so much for being here, Brooke and Alyssa. I'm um, really in awe of how you've both worked together to solve a problem that you could clearly see in front of you and both you know, it sounds like you've taken a lot of curiosity to your work, which is what any good scientist and health professional should do. Um, a whole lot of empathy and and really active, deep listening to the patients that you're helping with. And like I said before, it sounds like you're really pioneering uh, the, uh, the trio of health professionals working together to solve these big problems so that you can change lives and you can do it through allied health before, you know, and not make surgery always the first call. So thank you again. Um, Very, very inspiring story and work. And thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank thank you, Kate. (laughs) Um, And just a note for everyone listening, uh, we will put those links on the show notes um, and they will be available on this podcast episode so you can learn more. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. 
tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. 